0: Hear me? There we go. If Danny Baker would take his seat, we could begin. We'll just wait for him, everybody. Just wait with me. They do things differently in Croatia. They just take their time and you just got to wait. We do. We do. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for life. And we thank you especially, Lord, that we can worship you publicly and openly. And that you protect us and that you receive us because of your son. And so bless us this morning as we spend time in your word. Help us to do so in a way that would be pleasing in your sight and beneficial to our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited about today. Because This is our last Sunday in the quarter when we are not going to get done with the book. I know I had dreams of delusion uh, last week that somehow that was going to work, but it's not going to work. Um, I sort of knew last week it probably wasn't. Two weeks ago I thought I could do it, and then, yeah, my bad. But, um, but the good news is we're going to finish Lord willing chapter 20 today, and that is the most controversial tra- chapter in a sense and it's really where everything comes together. And probably what I'll do is in the fall, because I'm doing a new members class in the spring, in the fall, the first at least three, maybe four weeks, maybe the first month, we'll finish 21 and 22. And I'll even try to tie everything together in a, you know, after having been able to sit back and reflect on everything. So I'm, you know, I think that's going to be fruitful For you, But really, chapter 20 is the last controversial chapter. Nobody really fights over 21 and 22 with the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. This is the last sort of um, chapter where there's conflict, where there's uh, a great enemy. After the end of chapter 20, um, it's, you know, 21 begins with God wiping away every tear. And there's a new heavens and a new earth and the bride and, and all of that. And so we're really talking about the consummation. And everybody kind of comes together at that point. Maybe not sure of the details, but nobody really um, has giant controversies over that. So, uh, last time we argued that beginning in chapter 14, we're getting this same basic picture of Judgment Day from different perspectives. And I I want you to stay with me as we try to summarize all this. That as the chapters of Revelation go on, they recapitulate the same events. They retell it as it were, uh, the same story, but from different perspectives with different emphases using uh, a variety of images. And I think that's what comes and causes so much confusion among um, exegetes is that they're always looking for either some new thing or they're trying to see things in a strict sort of modern Western chronological order, which is not the way the Bible, even in the gospels tell their stories. And so it's important for us to recognize that. And again, we're in this apocalyptic type literature where we have to see all kinds of symbols and uh, pictures of things that are not literally true. John over and over again will say, I saw something that was like, 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 like. Not it was. It was like this. And he's using common things to describe what is not um, to be taken literally. And so that. Is something that we saw. And last week we ended with this graph that showed the same language and the same motion used in chapters 11 to 12 that we find in chapters 19 to 20. And so, what I want to do before we get into chapter 20. And we started it already and said some things about it. But I want to summarize what we've been seeing since chapter 10 when John was given that new scroll and told again, prophesy, again. So uh, that begins kind of a new point, this last whole section beginning uh, in chapter 10. And so starting then with chapter 11, once he eats the scroll in chapter 10... I want to summarize each chapter, uh, and that's this first section, Roman numeral one. So, chapter one, chapter 11, rather, we saw the mixed nature of the church between the two comings of Christ, is the way I interpreted it for you. And that was measure the temple and the worshipers, but don't measure the outside because it's given to the Gentiles and they're going to trample it. So, there's a corrupt nature within. The worship of God's people. And then you had the two witnesses then and, and, and resistance in the world. and So the gospel goes out until the end. And then chapter 12 was Christ's earthly ministry. That was the woman ready to give birth to the this son who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Clearly Jesus. And Satan's rage at not being able to destroy him until he rages against the church until the end. And then in, in chapter 13, we had these beasts coming together and, and deceiving the whole world and uniting the whole world against Christ and his church. And there would be this final rebellion led by the two beasts at the end. And then chapter 14 showed us the church triumphant in heaven. Those 144,000 that go with the Lord wherever he goes. And the gospel to kin- continuing to go forth on the earth you know, to uh, fear God, to give him glory. The uh, woes being declared until the end. Um, and it, uh, chapter 14 ends with the reaping of the earth and the wine press of God and the blood at the horse's bridle level for all those, uh, you know, hundreds of miles, a uh, picture all of the ultimate judgment. And then chapter 15 was all about the church worshiping in heaven, triumphant until the end. Remember they have their harps. they're, they're, they're on the sea of glass. They're in the throne room again. And then chapter 16, we saw the, all the seven bowls of wrath being poured out on the world, which would be the world from the world's perspective, the reprobate's even perspective, between the two comings of Christ, because all of these judgments are just tokens of what's to come on the reprobate, the rebellious, unbelieving world. And this final deception that would come uh, at the end of chapter 16 with rebellion and judgment once again. And then chapter 17, we get the picture of the harlot riding the beast, And the power and the seductions of Satan's kingdom and how it increases in wickedness again until this culmination at the end. And then chapter 18 gave us that detailed picture of the judgment of the harlot who is also Babylon who is really the world's system and culture of unbelief. And the mourning that's going to occur when God destroys all of the wicked pleasures that men can have at the end. And then in chapter 19, we saw the church praising and completed, worshiping God as the smoke of the torment of God's judgment of the wicked goes up forever and ever. The church is complete. It's perfected. uh, The gospel age is, is successful. It's fulfilled. Christ returns. He judges the two beasts and all of their followers at the end. So we're seeing this, you know, recapitulation, and I'm trying to put it together for you here, all these different ways of looking at it, different perspectives. And then in chapter 20, what we're going to see, and we've touched on this already, is a recapitulation of Christ's victory over Satan at his first coming with the resultant limiting of Satan's ability throughout the entire gospel age until at the very end he must be loosed in order to be finally destroyed. And then we get a a detailed account of Judgment Day, what sometimes is called the Great White Throne Judgment, at the end. And that's all of chapter 20. So what I'm arguing then is that, and I'm more confident having studied this now, that this is more or less what we've seen in the book of Revelation. This same message repeated over and over again with images, symbols, and events. And the following major events are more or less repeated throughout the book of Revelation. So in Roman numeral two now, I want to give you another kind of summary, topical this time, without just going chapter by chapter. Where you can find these same events, and I'm just giving you sort of the main sections of them here. You can also find these events in chapters 4 to 10, and I'll comment on that a little bit. But I didn't put them in the outline, but I'll, but I'll add them orally here before you, but at least some of them. So letter A, Christ's defeat of Satan at his first... These are things you can find throughout the book of Revelation repeated. Christ's defeat of Satan at his first coming. That's what the cross was all about. And we're going to look at some of those verses again in a moment. Which limited Satan's power so that the church is now preserved and able to go out in its nature and its function. Though not perfected, still corrupted, still mixed, right? tares and wheat, but not able to be stopped until it finishes its mission. And here you can look especially at the first half of chapter 12. And here in even beginning at the first part of chapter 20. Where Christ binds Satan with this great chain. And he's not able to deceive the nations anymore. Which we looked a little bit at last week. Uh, letter B, you also see throughout the, the book of Revelation, the heavenly church's enjoyment of Christ's victorious gospel reign between the two comings. Even when all these judgments are going on, even when the locusts are going out, even when the beasts are raging, we get these these periodic pictures of saints in heaven just rejoicing and praising God that he's one, that he's in control, that even though there's still, you know, uh, this resistance, that God is is. Uh, His timetable cannot be interrupted. His victory has not been marred in the least. And so we see that, especially at the first half of chapter 14, where you get that 144,000. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're victorious. They're singing. Uh, The first part of chapter 15 as well, and the first part of chapter 19, where they're praising God because the smoke of the torment of the wicked goes up forever and ever. And so this is this, again, the heavenly church's enjoyment of Christ's reign. Uh, Even as uh, between, again, the two comings, the gospel age and the church, you know, we talk about the church triumphant. It's there right now. They're praising God right now. They are triumphant right now. They're enjoying his triumph right now. We're still the church militant on earth. We've got crises and issues, but we should know and we should remind ourselves often that Christ has won. That the judgments we endure in this world are for our good. And that's uh, part of it, too. Let us see the third thing we see uh, repeated again and again is the corruption of the world and sin and these partial judgments, therefore, that do really come uh, upon the wicked until Christ returns. And you could look especially at the beginning of chapter 11 uh, with the two witnesses being killed and the beginning of chapter 16 um, and the beginning of chapter 17. Again, with the harlot on the beast corrupting, deceiving the world and, and judgments coming down from God. Um, and then it, uh, periodically throughout chapter 18, the, which is just the, that, that really uh, detailed description of the destruction of the harlot Babylon, which again is the world system. Then we see, letter D, periodically throughout the book, the persecution of the church on earth. We see the martyrs, especially chapter 6, where they're told, they're all under the altar and they're they're crying out to God, How long until you you avenge us and bring justice on the wicked and God gives them robes, tells them to hold on a little longer? So we got that in chapter 6, even before this second scroll vision. But then at the beginning of chapter 12 also... Uh, actually, the middle and end of chapter 12, where where Satan, is the dragon, is trying to destroy the woman. Trying to destroy those who believe in Jesus and who keep the commandments of God. And he's making war against them because he couldn't destroy the son. He couldn't destroy the one who the woman gave birth to. And so there's persecution of the church being pictured. Also at the beginning, or sorry, the middle of chapter 14 in verses 12 through 13, where it talks again about the... Um, The patience of the saints and the dead in the Lord who die. And so clearly uh, they died for their faith, it says. Those who die in the Lord from now on and so forth. And um, so that uh, picture gets repeated. Then we see Satan's uniting the unbelieving world against God and his church. We've seen this repeatedly. In chapter 11, when he gets them to uh, finally kill the two witnesses and the whole world rejoices. In chapter 13, where the two beasts, the first beast, everybody wonders at. The second beast is, uh, goes out and deceives the world, unites them against God, against Christ. And then in chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, we see again the, the beast with the... Um, Unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the dragon and both the beasts in order to gather the world together for the great day of the battle of, the, of God Almighty. And so, again, they deceive the whole world. We saw that in chapter 17 with uh, Satan deceiving the whole world through the uh, false miracles of the second beast. And then uh, letter F, Christ's last day destruction of Satan and his followers at Armageddon. And or the rapture of the church because it's the same day. The same day Christ destroys the wicked is the day that the church is gathered together. Uh, The dead in Christ rise first. They're taken into heaven and they join the train as Christ is coming down. And so all that occurs on one day. And we see that especially in chapter, again, at the end of chapter 11, at the end of chapter 14, and at the uh, end of chapter Nineteen, especially verse eleven. The heaven is open. He's on the white horse. Uh, the hosts of heaven are behind him. He's slaying all the wicked with the sword of his mouth. Um, and again, those the um, yeah the um, last day destruction then of Armageddon. And then letter G, Satan and his seeds' final destruction in hell. See this especially in chapter six where they're crying out to the mountains because the wrath of the lamb has come, fall on us, hide us. At the end of chapter 14, where the blood is at the horse's uh, uh, bridle. And then at the end of chapter 19, where they're actually thrown into the lake of fire, where it becomes very, you know, much more uh, um, clear that we're talking about the eternity of hell. And chapter 19 opened with their smoke going up forever, which obviously is eternal torment. And then um, letter H, the other, the final thing that we see repeated throughout these visions is the church worshiping and praising God for his final victory, especially the middle and end of chapter 11. Chapter 15, all of it. I didn't mention that, but chapter 15, all of it. And uh, the beginning of chapter 19 with the church praising God. So uh, these themes repeated throughout uh, with different images and, again, with different emphases. Which brings us, then, to the millennial question... Chapter 20, beginning at verse 2. So we touched on this last time, and I really want to uh, spend the rest of our time on really the first half of chapter 20. The second half is going to fall into place uh, after we do that. So let's look at the first half, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> so we have the first verse 1, which we looked at in somewhat in depth last time. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, Abusos which we've seen earlier in the book in a great chain in his hand he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and we compared this with that very same language chapter uh, 12 and Satan and bound him for a thousand years he cast him into the bottomless pit the abyss and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more that's how he's bound until the thousand years were finished after these things he must be released for a little while. So this binding is temporary. It's a great long period. Uh, and the bind—the nature of the binding is not totally bound. But in the length of time, he's not bound for eternity. So uh, we saw that. So the event, what's happening here? Satan is bound. He's cast out. He's or cast into the pit. He's shut into the pit. He's sealed into the pit. The abyss, which again is the place of torment and the place of the dead. The whole bottomless pit translation, I just don't like that. It's confusing. We, we puts an image in our minds that's impossible to conceive of. But the abyss is what we should uh, talk about here. The great deep, the place of the dead, Sheol, sometimes in the Old Testament. Sometimes just the place of the dead. But in the book of Revelation, always the place of torment and the place of the wicked. The purpose of the binding, that he should deceive the nations no more. No other purpose is mentioned. Nothing else, that he should deceive the nations no more, which clearly says that before he was bound, he was deceiving the nations. He was able to until he's bound and now he's not able to. So Satan, now something has happened to him that he can't do what he used to do. And the length of the binding is a thousand years. So let's look at first some things that we have to say are definitely symbols. All right because a lot of times this uh, interpretation I'm saying is faulted is is for not being literal enough but everybody sees multiple symbols here and I've tried to show you that repeatedly like with the woman who is clothed with the sun that can't be literal can't be standing in the sun as your robe and all these actual stars which are actually other suns on your crown that's uh, insane those are pictures those are images so the symbols satan is not literally a dragon all right, A dragon was, it refers to an actual dinosaur type of creature in the Old Testament, Leviathan, behemoth. And Satan is not actually that. So when it says he laid hold of the dragon, that's an image. That's a symbol. It's not literally an actual dragon being held onto. All right, Everybody takes it for that. That serpent of old, that speaks of that one particular snake in the garden, which is long dead now. Okay, and it's dust now. There, there was an actual snake that Satan was permitted and allowed, and he actually did use to deceive Adam and Eve. And that snake is dead, and that snake is not Satan. That's not being referred to here, even though he's called the serpent of old. The serpent of old here is a title for Satan, okay, who is also the devil and Satan. All right, so those are two names for Satan, Diabolos and Satanas, accuser, and bound him. So. Satan's not literally a dragon. He's not literally the individual snake that he used to deceive Eve. And a spiritual being can't actually be bound with a physical chain. That in itself is also another image. It's an image to say that Satan has now been limited. He's now been restrained. He's now been hindered in what he would like to do. And that's happened because of this angel coming down and doing this to him. Again, the abyss, the bottomless pit... Is not a literal pit in the ground that you can go to in Mexico somewhere and look into the hole. That's not what it is. All right? It's an image. Uh, it's a spiritual prison. It's not a physical prison. It's a place of torment for the wicked. Um, the shutting, the sealing. Again, that's not literal. There's not an actual like, you know, lock that's clanked shut on the top of the pit. Those words mean he cannot get out. He's shut in. He's sealed in. This spiritual being using these physical things, locks, seals, which we all can see in our minds. That's an image. That's a symbol to say that Satan is inescapably bound, limited, hindered by this act of judgment. Finally, and I'm going to argue this, the number 1,000 is often a symbolic number for the fullness of some category. Now, let me give you some verses, and you'll notice that these verses, and they're not all of them, all have to do with the idea of a thousand period of time being symbolic. Okay, so I'm not giving you uh, a thousand things, but uh, a thousand years, for example um deuteronomy 7 9 know that the lord your god he is god he is the faithful god who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations that's a length of time and it's clearly symbolic doesn't mean on generation 1001 god breaks his covenant and he has no mercy all right that's not a literal thousand generations and that's it that's it abraham your thousand and one generation i will not remember Okay? No, that's absurd. That, that makes God alive. A thousand generations, all, for all the generations. It means the fullness of generations. Psalm 90, verse 4. A thousand years are in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years are like a day. Now, that doesn't mean that a thousand years in one day is like ten days. You know, or, okay, then it ends. You know, a thousand and one years, you know, okay, that's actually. you know, no. A thousand years, ten thousand years, a million years. You could put in whatever you want there. It's symbolic that time for God is, doesn't change him or doesn't cause him to do anything different. A thousand years are like a day, right? In one day, we don't really change what we're going to do. That's like a thousand years for God, a million years, whatever. Uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verse 15. I don't remember if it's first or second. I didn't write it down. So somebody can look that up if they're interested. But God remembers his covenant forever. The word which he promised for a thousand generations. But on a thousand and one generations, he forgets his covenant. He just forgets. You know, he's God. He can't remember everything. No, it's not literal. He always remembers his covenant for a thousand. Do you see how over and over again, a thousand Again, generations, years, a period of time with the number 1,000 is always, in all these places, symbolic. Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verse 6. Even if he lives 1,000 years twice but has not seen good, do not all go to one place. Here he's talking about it doesn't matter how long you live. Uh, and he, you could say even if he sees 10,000 years twice but, and he doesn't see good, doesn't it, is it going to help him? He's still going to. Suffer. So uh, again, uh, living a thousand years here in Ecclesiastes is a symbol—a symbol for it. It Doesn't matter how long you live, if you're not uh, uh, if you're not truly converted to the Lord, it doesn't matter. You're going to die, right? So, and there's many other verses. I could uh, Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 1. uh, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times more numerous than you are, but not a thousand and one times. No. Uh, No, it's symbolic, right? Many, 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 many. Um, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. But on hill number 1001, those cattle belong to somebody else, God. Sorry, you got your thousand hills. It's literal. No, it's not literal. Over and over and over again, there are dozens of passages in the Old Testament where a thousand is symbolic for the fullness of time. Now, I can't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that that's the case here. But if my interpretation and in understanding it though so far is right, then this has to be a symbolic period of time. And again, it's in this passage where there's all kinds of symbols about dragons, about being bound, about being thrown into a pit, about being sealed, about being shut. And they have to all be symbolic. And therefore, that it's going to be for a thousand years seems also, since this is such a common symbol, uh, that it's not... Um, Doing violence to the text to so look at it as a as a symbol, Daniel chapter seven, verse ten, A fiery stream issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were open. Obviously, those thousands, those ten thousands are symbolic for everyone is there. <clears throat> All right, so Satan is bound. I'm going to argue then for some period of time, some fullness period of time, a thousand years, the fullness of some period of time, which I understand, and I, as we've gone through this, is the gospel age. And I want to try to prove that to, to you, that Satan is bound because of what Christ did at, at his first coming until Christ looses him before his second coming, that he's bound so that... He can no longer deceive the nations. Which enables the gospel to go out into every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And for God to gather a people, not just from the Jews, which was almost exclusively where most believers came from in the Old Testament period, at least from Abraham on. But now from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? The Jews very quickly in the New Testament become a minority, because so many Gentiles come in, and that had never happened before. There were a few that would trickle in here and there. You know, Ruth, the Moabitess, and Rahab, the Canaanites, and a few others. Naming the Syrian, many count. And there was a mixed multitude in Egypt that came. There were others. There were always others. But they were the exception. Now it's the rule, and, and I want to show you this. So I want to argue here that Satan... Again, was bound by what Christ did. Notice, uh, I think I have some of these scriptures in your outline. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus promises something here, right? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So he's talking about a fullness of having all of these given to him. And he's he's going to save them all. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I should lose none of them or nothing but I should raise it at the last day. And in uh, Revelation chapter 5, one of the first visions that we saw in heaven, what did we see? Verses 9 and 10, they sang a new song. There were these, all these people up in the, in the heaven, and it says, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's that fourfold category that we've seen repeated that I've argued always means the whole world. And you've made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign in the earth. And that is what's promised to every believer. Every believer is a priest, and every believer is a king. And you don't have to be a child of of Aaron anymore to be a priest, or a child of David anymore to be a king. If you're a believer, you're a priest and a king. You don't even have to be a Jew, and that's the point of this. They're from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And now they're reigning with God. John seventeen six, where Jesus in the upper room says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so there's this people that Christ is going to save, and he's not going to lose one of them. And we see this throughout his ministry. And that's, I think, the reason why Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but His long-suffering toward us or toward you, some manuscripts. Not willing that any of that group that God has promised Christ should perish, but that all would come to repentance, which is why Christ delays, Peter's saying. He's not delaying because, you know, he's slow. He's going to wait until all of Christ's, you know, uh, chosen ones come to faith and repentance, and then he will bring the end. So Christ in his uh, successful first mission when he came in the incarnation, I'm going to argue what Jesus actually did is he bound the strong man so that he can plunder his kingdom, which is the world. That was what never happened before Christ. Before Christ, the kingdom of God was located in this tiny little strip of land in the Middle East. And it basically was that one nation and all the other nations were in almost complete darkness until Christ and we see all sorts of scriptures not only declaring this, but actually prophesying of the change that would come when the Messiah came. So uh, let me just begin, I think, in sort of a, a logical order, where, first of all, First John 3, 8 declares, "...for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." So Jesus came, in other words, John says, in order that he should do something that would uh, affect what Satan was doing, destroy Satan's works. And of course, what is Satan pictured as doing over and over again in the book of Revelation? Deceiving the whole world, deceiving the whole world, deceiving all the... What did Jesus come to do? Destroy his work. Destroy his work of deceiving The whole world. Luke chapter 4 verse 5. Then the devil taking Jesus up. This is during the temptations. On a high mountain showed him. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him. All this authority I will give you. And their glory. For it has been delivered to me. He actually had authority over all these other nations. None of the other nations were God's people. And I give it to him ever I wish. This is what Jesus did when he defeated Satan in the temptations. He took that authority away from him. And he begins to declare this in his ministry, which is why immediately after the temptation, what does Christ go out doing? Binding Satan, casting out demons, showing he has defeated him, and now he has power to cast him out of the world. And that's what we saw in chapter 12. In Matthew, when the uh, accusers and the Pharisees and the doubters come to Jesus... And they say he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. They, they couldn't deny he was casting out demons. But remember what Jesus said to them in verse 28. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is now here in a new way. In a way it's never been here before. It was here typ- typically, symbolically under, the, under these uh, 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 type typological heads like David and David's line, but it was to David's greater son that it was promised his throne would be forever. And so when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom. Remember the son of, son of David, son of David, Hosanna to the king. The king is coming. He's going to conquer our enemies. And that's what Jesus did by defeating Satan. And so he says, how can... Well, first of all, uh, Matthew 12, 28. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Very next verse... Or, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus had to defeat Satan. That's why the very first thing he does is go out, after he's announced in his baptism, is go out and defeat Satan in the, in the temptations. And now then, he begins to plunder Satan's house. And that word in Matthew twelve twenty nine, binding the strong man, is the exact same word in the Greek... As the angel binding the dragon with the great chain in Revelation 20. all right, do you see that? Bound him for a thousand years. Same word as Jesus saying, you have to bind the strong man before you can plunder his house. And that's what Christ did. And then when he uh, anoints the 70 and sends them out, notice what they say in Luke 10. Then the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. See, Satan has been bound now. So that these people can be given this kingdom authority and go out and they can cast out demons, these believers, and they did. And then Jesus comments on that and says in Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning when I defeated him in the wilderness, when he could not make me sin. And he suddenly lost his authority and now I'm plundering and I'm casting him out of the world. And then in Isaiah, we go back, all the way back to Isaiah, we get prophecies that this would happen. That there would come a day where all these nations that had always been in darkness would suddenly see a great light. Right? That's what we sing about all the time in Handel's Messiah. Isaiah 9.2, famous passage, right? The people who walked in darkness, the, the Gentiles, the pagans, the nations, the Goyim. They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And again, Isaiah 42, and there are many other passages that I could have picked, but I just picked these two. Verse 6 I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Here it is as a light to the Gentiles who were always in darkness, who were always in prison, who were always bound by Satan and deceived by him but notice verse 7 to open blind eyes to bring the prisoners out of the out of the prison those are the those are the other people's they were basically prisoners they had no gospel those who sit in darkness from the prison house that's what Christ did and interestingly in John chapter 12 let me just read you a little background here remember Jesus is finishing up his ministry in John 12 it's really his last public appearance And in John 12, verse 20, it says, There were certain Greeks, the only place in the Gospels where Greeks are mentioned as wanting to come to Jesus. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Greeks, darkness, lost, bound, no gospel. Nations deceived by Christ, the Greeks with all their gods and goddesses. And now they want to see Jesus. And it's Philips tells Andrew, and Andrew tells Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. He says that in response to the Greeks wanting to see him. That he's going to die and now have much fruit produce among the Greeks, among the Gentiles, among the nations that Satan had always deceived before. And that's what he says in John chapter 12, verse 31, just a couple verses after this same conversation. Now is the judgment of this world. Now here it is. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Once I die on the cross, I bind him. And then I send out my disciples, my apostles into all the nations and they make disciples of all the nations. And Satan can't stop it anymore because he's been bound with the great chain. He can't deceive them anymore to worship Baal, to worship Dagon, to worship uh, Marduk and all the others because I bound him. Again, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw... Here it is, all peoples to myself. Only once I'm lifted up, only once I've defeated Satan, only once I've bound him with the great chain, will now all nations come and be part of my church. And that's what the visions open up with. Again, in Revelation 5, where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is, are saying, you've made us priests and kings, and we reign with you. And that begins the series of visions. Colossians 2 says, the cross. it was on the cross that Jesus, what... Disarmed the principalities and powers. That's where he he took away their ability to deceive the nations. He triumphed over them on the cross. And then Paul declaring at Athens. Chapter 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance, times before the gospel went out, God overlooks. But now the gospel is going into all nations and he commands all men everywhere to repent. That hadn't happened before. And then he mentioned earlier in, John, or in Acts 14, 16, how God in bygone generations allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Another way to just to describe the fact that God was not calling people from all the nations to become his people before Christ. Now in Christ he does. And Jesus does this, right? He gives what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me. He never says that before. All authority now has been given to me, because I've won, I've defeated all my enemies, in heaven and on earth. Now go and make disciples of all the nations, because Satan won't be able to stop you. You will make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, etc. And I'll be with you when? Till the end of the thousand years. He doesn't say that. I'll be with you to the end of the age. To the end of this period in which I have all authority and I'm sending you out. And you'll make disciples and no one will be able to stop it. And Paul summarizes at the end of the book of Acts. What God had said to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes, to bring them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Go back and read Acts 26, 17 and 18. From the power of Satan to God. They were under Satan's power. They were deceived before. But now I'm sending you, Paul, and all the other apostles because the Gentiles won't be deceived anymore. They can't be deceived anymore. They're no longer in the darkness. They're no longer under the power of Satan. I, I'm sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness, to turn them from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance by those among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Christ did. That's the Great Commission. The world was under Satan's dominion. Jesus defeated him. All right? And then he sends out... The apostle, and Jesus talks about this, you know, in John 10, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, because Satan can't stop it. And there will be one flock and one shepherd, and so on and so forth. And we can look at uh, Psalm 98, the Lord has made his salvation among the nations, he has made it known, he has revealed his righteousness among the nations. Isaiah chapter 11, In that day there will be a root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. We all know, there are dozens of passages like this, that when the Messiah comes, there will be this great ingathering of the Gentiles that never happened before. Why didn't it ever happen before? Because Satan was in complete control of those nations. Again, in the providence of God, according to his timetable, Jesus comes and defeats him, and he's not able to deceive the nations anymore. He can't stop The gospel program. So my argument here is that during the thousand years, which is the gospel age, the gospel will have fruit in all the world. Satan cannot stop it. More or less, you know, this nation or that nation for a time can really persecute the Christians for a time. The Roman Empire, Europe, horrible place to be for a Christian. Now, okay, maybe it's not as great as it was. But that's where Christendom was for hundreds of years. You know, Europe, Europe, where, where laws demanded that you had to be a believer in Jesus. Uh, not to say that that was the right way to go about it, but I'm just saying that how those, those nations were transformed, right? And now, okay, it's harder to be a Christian right now in Muslim nations, in China, maybe. Um, but, you know, South Korea, Brazil. You know, countries in Africa. I mean, very much Christian. And again, Satan. You know, it's like I, I think I described it like whack-a-mole before. For Satan, he's trying to stomp out the church, but it keeps popping up, and he can't do it because he's been bound. He's been bound for a thousand years. All right. So, uh, but it does say here again: at, when the time is up, he'll be loose. Well, why was he? Why is he going to be loose? Because he has to be loose to be destroyed. That's why during the gospel period. Satan had more sort of ability to do things than any other time. You don't read anywhere in the Old Testament about all these demon-possessed people. you know, uh, And you don't read about it in Paul's letters. You only read about it in the Gospels. All these people, demon-possessed. And everybody knew they were demon-possessed. You can read about it in Tacitus where demon-possessed people were brought before one of the Roman emperors at that time. And everybody knew somehow whatever this was, this great phenomenon that Satan was kind of loosed in the world at the time of Jesus to actually possess people and do horrible things because Jesus had to face him in that power that he had. And that's when Jesus defeated him. Um, But he never seems to be more sort of prevalent in the world except at the gospel time, you know, doing all this havoc. And then Christ defeats him, and then he's bound now until this thousand years are up, and then he's going to be again uh, released. So, uh, let's go to Roman numeral four. I was going to talk to you more about Ezekiel, but I'm not going to do that. But you can see the comparison in Ezekiel, uh, which uh, we've looked at before. But we're running out of time, and I really want to get to the rest of this. So, um, here's here's the key phrase. So, let's go to verses four to six. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. Obviously, these are people who were killed, right? Beheading was what uh, Paul suffered. If you were a Roman citizen and you were killed, you were killed by beheading. Here it's for their witness to Jesus. They're clearly martyrs. Which is what we saw in chapter 6. The martyrs, again. And throughout the book where those killed for Jesus are crying out. But um, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. Okay. And... It says they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Which the very beginning of the images are people saying we are priests and kings. Okay, I don't want to spell it out too much. But let's, let's just look at this for a second. So... The word throne occurs 46 times in Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible. And other than the three times it refers to Satan's throne or to the beast's throne, three times, every single time the thrones are in heaven. Remember we did that diagram? I'm not going to do it again because it was such a magnificent piece of art that I drew for you. (laughs) But of the throne room in heaven, where you get this picture of the throne in the sea of glass and the one in the middle, and there are these other thrones. The thrones are always in heaven. The thrones are never on the earth, ever, unless here in chapter 20 alone, that these thrones are set up on the earth. And I'm arguing this for a reason here, and it'll become apparent in a moment. But I'm arguing that these thrones have to also be in heaven because the thrones are always in heaven. Because that's where we reign with God. The gospel, uh, the epistles say that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Being seated with him is reigning with him, having a throne. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we are seated on the thrones, where we see God's rule. And so Revelation 4, verse 4, around the throne there were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw the 24 elders, and so this is clearly heaven. Now, when we read of souls in verse 4, the word soul can mean people. There were eight souls on the ark. We know that means people. The word soul can mean people. I think here it has to mean souls. Because it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Okay? Okay? It's not, I saw souls. I saw the souls of those who had been killed. So this, this, it seems to me, has to be actual souls and not people who are alive. Okay, these are people who have been killed for their faith in Christ. Um, And again, we saw the same thing in Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So Departed spirits, spirits separated from their bodies, still alive, because we know when we die, our souls, our spirits, same thing, by the way, goes to be with the Lord immediately. That's clear in scripture. And so John, again, saying that somehow he's allowed to see these spirits and God can do that. And verse four and five says they lived. And then this is the first resurrection. Now, those two phrases are that's everything. What does it mean to say that the souls lived, and what is the first resurrection? This is what everybody fights about. This is where all the controversy is. I think we have a couple of options. I think we have three options. The resurrection is either regeneration, which is being born again, which is coming back to life, right? Spiritually, right? When you were converted to Christ, you were regenerated. You were born again. You were given a new nature, Remember how Nicodemus was all confused with this because he understood it in a physical way and Jesus wasn't talking about that. You must be born again, Nicodemus, spiritually, obviously. So that could be what we're talking about. They lived. They were born again. They were converted to Christ. Uh, They were uh, regenerated. It could be an actual resurrection. They lived. They were brought back to life, like Lazarus, right? Lazarus is brought back to life, body and soul. He's alive now. He was dead. It could be that. Or it could be, uh, thirdly, they're alive with Christ in heaven. They are departed souls. They're souls, like the souls under the altar, who are alive again. Uh, Who, after they died in their physical, earthly deaths, they are now, they go to be with the Lord. They live. Remember, it's just the word, they live. It's not, they began To live that's you'll see this in some translations now this is a technical argument Um, it's you know look at the end of where where, we where we are at is the end of verse 4 and they lived and reigned with Christ some say and they began to live right. Well, there's all kind of different things in Greek, and there's an ingressive aorist, and there's a resultant aorist, and there's an inceptive aorist. And some say this is the inceptive aorist, where you can translate the word that simply is aorist is simple past tense, lived. But if it's inceptive, then it would mean that it's something that has just begun. So you could actually translate it in English: they began to live, even though it's just one word in the Greek, they lived, and it's a, Complicated argument. I'm not going to go into it. It's possible that this is a inceptive aorist. It's not certain that it is. You have to argue for that, and it would need an infinitive for it to really be. But there's no infinitive there. But it could be without it. But even if it is, it's still correct to translate it. They lived, and just understand that this is a new kind of life that they began to live. So um, I'm not going to go any further into that. But um, I think it's important to remember here a couple of things. Every martyr for Christ, and this book is filled with people being martyred, is not defeated but victorious. That happens, and we see that over and over again. This is an encouraging book. This isn't a scary book. This isn't like, you know, when my wife was little and she was afraid to see the Wizard of Oz, which I reminded her of this morning. Because those flying monkeys were scary. I mean, kind of like the locusts, right? (laughs) Scary monkeys. But... But everyone that dies in Christ is is alive and reign. And that's what the book tells you over and over again. Victorious, he goes to be with the Lord and then begin to sing uh, and, and praise him, even as things are happening on the earth that are scary. But it's not just the martyrs, it seems to me, that that's true for. We've seen repeatedly it's everyone who believes, right? Everyone who believes. That's why you get this category. Notice it's those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worship the beast or his image and had not received the mark. Now I've argued that worshipping the beast and receiving the mark clearly is a spiritual condition of unbelief. Because everyone who worships the beast and everyone who receives the mark clearly in the book does does not get saved but dies and go to hell. That can't be true if it's just a mark on your hand or on your forehead. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've been born again and somebody stamps something on your forehead, that's not going to cause you to die and go to hell. Because you're saved by faith, not by being markless. you know. Uh, so th- that's the spiritual reality behind the mark that I think confuses many people. And that's what pushes me to say that this, the mark is not some actual physical thing. But it's a condition of unbelief. A condition of, again, being in league with Satan, which is ultimately what unbelievers are, whether they know it or not. And so um, it's everybody who doesn't take the mark. It's everyone who believes... All dead believers are those who live and reign with Christ. And this is what happens when we die. And there are these thrones in heaven. And you know Colossians and other books of the Bible, Ephesians, say that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. That we will go and reign with him. And there's no mention of living in new bodies, but living as souls. Notice this in verse 5. But the rest of the dead... Did not live again until the thousand years were finished. It's the rest of... So here we're talking about living as souls with God. Because they're dead. And they're alive in some sense again. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. That's true if you're converted to Christ. And that's true if you've died in faith. And you're with the Lord. Second death can't hurt you. You can't go to hell. Right? So whoever dies in faith is with God in heaven. He can't go to hell. And the state of living souls in heaven is far better, Paul says, than it is here to be alive on earth. Now, if there's there's an interesting place that can illuminate this. We'll have to go quick, but I think we'll make it. John 5.25, where Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, the hour is coming. Now listen, the hour is coming and now is... When the dead will, future tense, hear, will hear the voice of the Son of God... ...and those who will hear will live. All right? The hour is coming and now is. Right now is, Jesus said. When the dead, dead people, will hear Christ's voice and live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man... Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming, verse 28, and he doesn't say and now is. The hour is coming in which all who all who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Do you see what Christ did there in John 5? He talked about two resurrections. The first resurrection is all who hear the voice of the son and that was happening in his lifetime. All who hear the voice of the Son will live. The hour is coming and now is. If you hear, really, savingly hear my voice, you'll live. You will live. You will live when you die. Remember what he said to Martha? You know, Lazarus. All oh, I know. He'll live in the final resurrection. I'm the resurrection. He'll live now. Martha is what Jesus meant. The hour is coming when all who are in the graves. Here's the general resurrection. will come forth. Not just those to a resurrection of life, but to a resurrection of condemnation. And so um, that's my argument here, that what we're seeing is in this text, is the way I understand it, I would lean towards that these are the souls of believers who have died and they reign with Christ in heaven. And that's the millennial reign. When you die, you will go and you will reign with Christ in heaven until he returns, um, and uh, that's that periodic praise that we've been seeing in heaven bursting forth you know, again in chapter 5, in chapter 15, in chapter 19 we're always seeing these saints pray and they're reigning with him and they're kings and priests and I think that's what Christ is talking about here this is not living this is not people coming back to life in physical bodies and reigning in some millennial kingdom on the earth I don't understand it that way I understand it as a picture, again, of the, of the victory that Christ has won, that we join uh, in, a, in a greater way than we know now. We, again, I think those categories. We are the church militant now. We are not triumphant now. We are seated by faith, but when we die, we will go and join that church triumphant, which is reigning with Christ for a thousand years and however long it takes. And so I think <clears throat> that's what we're getting pictured here. Verses 7 to 9 is Armageddon, Satan released. He goes out again to deceive the nations. This is something that happens very quickly. And what happens? Fire comes down from heaven and devours you say why such a quick summary of the greatest battle on earth because we've been given pictures of it already in 6 12 to 17 11, 11 to 19 14 14 to 18 16 18 to 21 17 14 and 19 to 11 to 21 when Jesus is striking them down with the sword from his mouth which I argued has to be that he's killing them and not a picture of conversion so we've already gotten the judgment day explained so now it's just says, fire from heaven destroys them. Different pictures of the final day when Christ destroys. And then in verse 10, where the devils thrown into the lake of fire. This isn't a thousand years later. Again, it's the same day that we saw in chapter 19, when the beast and the false prophet are thrown. When the lake of fire is opened up, which is the fullness of hell, body and soul, which nobody is at now. The, the wicked dead are in a place of torment now, but there's not yet the lake of fire, the second death where after the res- general resurrection, people are thrown in. That's what's pictured at the end of 19. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Here in picture uh, chapter 20, the devil is. But it's all at the same time. It's all the same judgment. Chapter 20 is giving us the demise of the final enemy. We saw the harlot destroyed in 18. The two beasts in 19. The only one left standing is the dragon. And he gets, we get his image of being destroyed in verse 20. But all of them are the same event. Judgment Day. One Judgment Day. Described again, different pictures. Here's Satan's demise. Here's when he is thrown in to the, uh, the, uh, to the lake of fire. And again, that's um, the same section over and over again. And then the verses 11 to 15 is Judgment Day. That's the picture of Judgment Day for everybody. Um, and there's only one Judgment Day. There wasn't a Judgment Day before this on the earth That's why I argued those thrones are in heaven at the beginning of the chapter. There's only, In fact, the scripture is so clear on this. One judgment day, one second coming, one final battle, one resurrection, over and over again. It's always called the last day, that day, the day of the Lord, over and over again. It's always in the singular. When Christ returns, that's when the dead in Christ rise. That's when you want to see the rapture happen. We will all, we will, whoever is alive and remains will be taken up. But they'll be taken up as the Lord is coming down to destroy the wicked. And judgment will occur on that day. And the wicked will be thrown into hell on that day. And the, um, the saints will begin to shine like the sun. The new Jerusalem. We're going to get in 21 and 22, Lord willing, if we're all still alive here in the fall. And Christ hasn't come back yet. We're going to get a picture of what happens to the righteous. So, you know, the crisis now is over. We have dealt with it over and over again, it seems to me. Um, and uh, I want you to really think about it and then let me know uh, what your thoughts are. We've, we've finished sort of the major um, section of all of the disputed things. I'm not saying, you know, I've figured it all out. But I'm very confident and comfortable in, the, in what we've set forth as an interpretation of Revelation. It doesn't do violence to any other clearer pa- set passages of Scripture about uh, the second coming or about the resurrection or about being justified by faith and so forth. And I think those are the anchors that you've got to have when you're interpreting all these symbols. And I think it, do- it does justice, again, to the gospel and what actually is happening in the world. And so, um, you know, um, well, that's, that's, that's it. That's all we're doing. There's <laughs> a lot more to be said, but I'll, I'll take a couple quick questions we'll go maybe a little bit late since there is some some moment time to think John he's on a leash Uh, he can't do everything he wants and that's on purpose that Christ gathers his bride right that that perfecting of that bride until until the until the last saint comes and then I think again he's loosed in order to be destroyed And there's another thing. People say, why is he loosed again and again? Well, not only to be destroyed, but to show forth just how wicked the world really is. Even after all this, right? Even after all all the gospel going out, as soon as Satan's allowed, the whole world's going to hate the church again and persecute the church. It's going to be very brief, I think. That's why it's always one hour, you know, three and a half days versus three and a half years and so forth. It's a brief period. It's an intense period. And all those, that's why you know, all those who are martyred with him, and we constantly promise that, go to be with the Lord. He'll wipe away every tear. That's what 21 begins with. Wipes away every tear, no matter what Satan has done. So, all right, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, again, and we thank you, and we praise you for your goodness. We thank you for this most encouraging book, and I pray that everyone would see it as that, that you have won the victory, Lord Jesus, and that we get to experience it by faith right now, but one day when we die, we don't have to wait for the second coming. The moment we die, we will experience it by sight. We will join that praising church in heaven. We will see your victory. We will be completely um, delighted in it. We'll still be looking forward to our new bodies. We won't be f- finished yet. But it will be far better to be with you in heaven. And we know that's the case. And I pray that would comfort all those who have lost loved ones in you, Lord God, that they are with you and we will all be once again together in new bodies someday, and and that's a promise too. So, Father, we just again thank you for this book, that it does encourage us, no matter what we face, that you're in control, that you've won, and that you are causing all things to work for our good. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.